Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Imagine the following. A teacher walks into class to announce the final exam. If you do well on the test, she explains, it is not because of you. You are clueless. If you happen to do well, it is because I am an awesome teacher. So please, do not expect a good grade. Just be thankful that I let you attend class in the first place. She continues, If you do poorly on the test, please be advised it is your fault. I am an awesome teacher. As such, you have absolutely no excuse for your failure. Finally, she concludes, If you do very well, I may still decide to fail you. You better believe me, and you had better not mess with me, because, once again, for effect, I am an awesome teacher, and I have said so. It should be noted that the results of this test will determine whether or not you graduate. So you have to attend class, you have to work hard and study, but you get no credit and there are no guarantees. Being saved by grace doesn't sound so fluffy anymore, does it? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 12 to 18. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 184 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We mentioned in a previous episode that the name Bethpage referred to unripened figs. And names, of course, in Scripture have metaphoric value. They have functional value. And so now we're coming to this discussion of the fig tree and the question of fruitfulness. Does Israel bear fruit? Does a Gentile who hears the word bear fruit? Do the twelve bear fruit? You receive the Lord's grace in the gift of his instruction, his seed. Are you a soil in which that seed will flourish so that others can eat from its produce? Or are you a soil where that seed will be choked? That's a fundamental question in Mark. Up to this point in the book of Mark, it's been about planting, sowing, planting, sowing. But what happens after the planting, when it becomes late, it becomes time for the harvest. And so now he left Bethany, the house of the poor, and he's hungry. He's going to be looking for food. And where do you find food? Those are the fruits of the harvest. So now Jesus is saying, look, I've been doing what my dad told me to do. And I've trusted my dad all along. Now I'm going to go look for some food. 
Let's see if the figs are ready on the tree. This is the first time it said he was hungry. Back when he was in the wilderness and they were feeding 5,000 people, they were worried about the people being hungry. Jesus was not concerned himself about being hungry. But now that it's already late, now he's interested in getting a bite to eat. It's late as in the hour is at hand late. That's the trick with the language. Now, Jesus trusts the Father. We'll see whether he can have a bite to eat and see if that has any bearing on whether or not he continues to trust the Father. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So, he trusts God. He trusts that the seed will produce fruit. But now he's going to go see, has that actually come to pass? And when he gets to the tree, even though it's late, there's nothing but leaves. And by late, we mean in scripture always too late. Now, do you think that if Jesus trusted his father's instruction and sowed the seed, and then a tree sprouted up in your community, and that tree didn't bear fruit, Whose fault is it? But we didn't have enough time yet. (laughs) Do you really think that the seed which does what the seed does is to blame for the fact that the tree that grew on your soil didn't produce figs? Now you're going to say, Father Mark, that's not fair. And I'm going to say, fair doesn't factor into grace. We'll see what Jesus thinks, if that's fair or not. You say, Father Mark, that's not fair because you still are in a business negotiation with God. You still haven't accepted that the one who sows the seed and who causes it to grow gets all the credit if it succeeds and you get all the blame if it fails and you get no credit if it succeeds. This is why people get frustrated with the parable of the sower. They want to claim somehow that you can make the soil ready and prepared. No, you can't. You are at the mercy of the shepherd. If you are still asking whether or not Jesus' treatment of the fig tree is fair or just, it's because you have not identified yourself with the function of the child and the function of the blind man in Mark. This is the point. You still want power. If you still insist upon a dichotomy between grace and works, it's because you still want power. You still are like the rich man who approaches Jesus with a checklist. You have to accept the contradiction that you have no control over whether or not the seed will bear fruit, but you will be held accountable if there's no fruit. Fig leaves in Genesis are used to cover up One sin. And one sin is that one does not produce fruit when it is time to produce fruit. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. They should be. I'm happy they're finally listening. (laughs) We're in chapter 11, but at least they're listening. Then they came to Jerusalem. Notice, not only were they listening, Richard, but they didn't say anything. Then they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those 
who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves, and he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. Now, every time I've ever heard someone talk about this, they try to explain how sometimes even Jesus gets angry. With all due respect, this is not some kind of an anomaly in the text. If you're reading scripture correctly, Jesus has been the authority figure who's frustrated all along. He tried to get out of Jerusalem last episode, but he's having to come back and having to face the reality of what's there in the temple. If you understand Mark, you should be shocked it took him this long to start tipping tables over. He was just trying to avoid the temple as long as possible. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. And the operative terminology and phraseology from this excerpt from Isaiah is the mention not of a house of prayer, but a house of prayer for all the nations. If it's for everyone, what are you buying and selling? What do you possess? Are you using authority to lord it over others? Or are you showing mercy? I think it's significant, Father, this comes from the last section of Isaiah, which is an eschatological section. Often I've heard this section in Mark used to discuss whether it's okay to buy and sell or whether it's okay to buy and sell inside of a church, this sort of thing. Jesus performs an action. This often happens in the prophets. The prophet performs an action, but then there's a word that interprets that action so that you understand what it means in the context of Torah. He didn't just go in to smash tables of money changers. He is making a point. And the point is the point that Isaiah was trying to make, which is eschatological. Isaiah 56 is the beginning of what scholars have called third Isaiah, which is talking about after Cyrus has taken over the Babylonian empire for the Persian empire and a new age is dawning. This is what Jesus is doing. He's not just destroying it. He's saying that in order for it to be that eschatological house of prayer for all nations, it has to be leveled in order to be built with God's hand, not with the human hand. Then he follows it up, but you have made it a robber's den, and the robber's den is proving the rottenness of the human being. In Hosea, the Lord has to destroy Samaria take people out of Samaria and put them into exile and level the entire area in order to make a point for the next generation. Jesus is not trying to fix the temple. Jesus is foreshadowing the destruction of the temple. In Jeremiah 7, which is where the second piece of this quote comes from, this puzzle that Mark is putting together for you, explaining the prophets in the preaching of Jesus. In Jeremiah chapter 7, that's where we hear this beautiful warning that is to be announced to everyone who passes through the gates of the city. Do not call this the temple of the Lord. These things you see around you, inside the gates, do not say this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord. Don't do it. Because the temple of the Lord is where the word is preached and where people gather together with all of the nations to hear the Messiah preach the word. That's the true temple. It's not a temple made with stone. 
So, as you said, it's not that he's purging the temple. He is rejecting it. He's saying, this is not my temple. This is a house of robbers. What does Jeremiah promise? That if you take care of the poor and the widow, and you don't kill people in this place, you don't shed blood in this place, then I will let you dwell there. But that's a play on words, because the only thing that's going to cause you to take care of the poor and the widow and the orphan and to not shed blood and so forth is to follow the Torah. And once you follow the Torah, then you're in the temple. You're in the land flowing with milk and honey, wherever you are, as we hear in the story of Joshua. And it was so significant that in a recent episode, we talked about how Jesus is the son of David without a throne. Now here's the place where the son of David should take his throne in Jerusalem and he foreshadows its destruction. And that's why verse 18 makes complete sense. It doesn't just make sense because the chief priests and the scribes are going to be upset about the fact that he turned over the tables. He's not turning over the table of them changing money. He's turning over the whole table. He's just upending the whole system. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And again, the chief priests and the scribes, as we said earlier in Mark, are interested in the same thing that Caesar and his court are interested in. The mob. The mob. What does the mob think? Do we have some bread for the mob? Can we throw a circus to keep them under control? No, you can't, because now the gospel is on the move. The leaders cannot afford to have the people be amazed in something else. And if you don't understand what I'm saying about the gospel being on the move, answer me one question. Why in the modern age in China, they would not allow house churches, only institutional churches? Why? Because heaven forbid someone actually read scripture without a license and figure out that the government of China has no power before the shepherd. Heaven forbid. In other words, the government of China, any government that's interested in oppressing people, doesn't want to hear about Jesus saying, I'm not interested in your table fellowship, which is a table fellowship of extortion. I'm interested in the table fellowship of the nations. I set a table here so that Jew and Greek would sit together. And you set a table here so that Jew could steal from Greek and Greek could steal from Jew. And everyone's still trying to figure out why globalization doesn't work. It's a lie. It is a lie and a betrayal of the proud heritage of American liberal values to claim that you can create a brotherhood of nations through money changers. And we're going to pay a price for it. You create the brotherhood of nations by taking care of the poor and the needy and the outcast and looking after the widow and the orphan, and making sure, as Jeremiah said, not to shed blood. Come on. As Jesus said, you make yourself a slave of all. The first must be last, and the last must be first. Jesus is presenting what it is to be king. Now, when he said before that as the king, he doesn't have authority to lord it over people, well, maybe one might think, that this contradicts what he said. He's not lording it over people. He is making the point that was already stated in Torah on the lips of Isaiah in Isaiah 56, that all of this 
has to change. But the only one that does not change, as we've seen the disciples, are human beings. The next temple that the humans build is going to be just as corrupt as the last one. The only temple that has a chance of not being corrupted is the one that God builds. But the only way God can build his is if he clears the foundation and is ready to build. But as you said, Father, he's already begun the foundation of that, which is through Torah and the human beings that read Torah and do Torah are already living in that Jerusalem. Which is a house of prayer for all the nations. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.